Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Titling today's message, Pull Them Out of the Fire. Get them out of there. And we're really going to hit this more towards the back half of today's message. We will be crossing the finish line. We will finally get uh, done with this series. And it's always, I mean, this is maybe just a me thing, but I really like finishing series. I, I feel good about it, okay? <laughs> I, I feel accomplished. I did something. So uh, I'm excited to cross that finish line. And next week, we'll be breaking into new ground. And uh, I will share with you what that is later today. But for now, last week, this is where we ended off. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith. Credibly profound statement with a world of understanding behind it. The whole concept here that is being conveyed is your faith in no way is to be stagnant. Your faith in no way is to be where, where you suffer from spiritual lethargy, where you do nothing. There has to be a burning fire kindled in your heart. There should be desire. You can't get enough of Yeshua. That's the faith. And you're pressing in on a daily basis, and you're growing in him. You're adding to your faith. And so this is where Jude's coming from. But then he says this. He says, praying in the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Because I'm going to tell you, it means different things to different people. Specifically, there are two groups here. One group, your those who are of the charismatic persuasion, your, your word of faithers, your assemblies of God, uh, your Pentecostals. Now, keep in mind, this is my background. I was raised this way. I'd go, you know, it was nothing for me to go into a Sunday and listen to the community, just the entire thing, to erupt in the gift of tongues. I'd hear it week after week. The pastor would pray in tongues. We would have this. Well, I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, you lay this out before a charismatic, and what they'll say is, is that there's one thing being communicated here. We're talking about praying in tongues. There's another group that comes along and says, well, hold on a second. And I would fall into this group, as irony would have it, despite my upbringing. There's another group that comes on the scene and says, this is much broader in scope. This is, this is not that narrow Okay, of what's being described here, a narrow demographic. And what do I mean by that? I mean the following. If we were to believe that praying in the Holy Spirit is explicitly referring to praying in tongues, well, now you're only talking to the people who've been given the gift of tongues. Think about that. Let that sink in. And so you'd be excluding a very, very large demographic. And now all of a sudden, Jude, the whole time, is speaking to all the brethren but now in this little tiny moment, now he's only going to speak to a very narrow demographic. And so I submit to you that is exactly what he is not doing. This is a much broader demographic. Now it would include, this demographic where it's a much broader scope would include the gift of tongues. It doesn't exclude it, but it would include it. When the writer tells us, he's instructing us to pray in the Holy Spirit, what is really being communicated? Well, I'm going to tell you, one of the easiest ways to see this is how Yeshua taught his apostles to pray. To pray. How did he teach them to pray? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Listen, your kingdom come, 
your will be done. It's at the head of the prayer. To pray in the spirit is to pray the heart of the father. It's to pray the will of God. That ultimately is what is being conveyed. And so we're going to go through this a little bit. I'm going to take you to 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. Now this is the confidence that we have in him. Oh, that if we ask anything according to his will. Now, when John, John is talking about prayer. This is, this is talking about communicating with God. He's involved with prayer. And he lays out the first thing in essence that Yeshua lays out after you give the Father glory. You pray the will. See, John is setting the people up like Yeshua set his apostles up for success. For true success and power. This is what's going on here. This is praying in the spirit. Now look at what happens when we pray in the spirit, when we pray according to his will. He hears us. He hears us. Do you, do you even know what that means? Do you understand what that means for you? Do you understand the gravity of what's being conveyed? You know, it's interesting not that long ago, and I, maybe it's a coincidence, maybe it's not. Uh, but just recently, I was reading Plutarch's work, okay, on Moralia. And then some of you might be a little concerned about Daniel right now. No need. <laughs> there is a biblical context for that, a historical context. In other words, Plutarch's from the first century. This Greek philosopher, pagan priest, he was a priest some, some 30 years at the Temple of Apollo, in Delphi. He was alive when the apostles' message was going out, when the gospel was going out. No question he was confronted with the gospel in some way, shape, or form. This guy's from the first century. Now, here's what's interesting about Plutarch. He mentions the island of Crete specifically in regard to the statue of Zeus that was there. And what he, what he, what he identifies is that the statue of Zeus has no ears. And the reason he has no ears is because there's an inscription written down. And it said, it's not fitting for the Lord and ruler of all to listen to anyone. Think about that. I read that. That hit me hard. And I cracked a smile. Because their God is not like our God. Their rock's not like our rock. Our God is so amazing that he is willing to bend his ear to his creation, to his people. Let that sink in, because that, when you start absorbing that reality, it will change your life. So much so that if we do what John is saying here, if we're praying in the spirit, we're praying according to the will, we are told God hears us, and then here's the payoff. And if we know that God hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions we have asked of him. Whatever. Whatever petition, nothing is impossible for God. Whatever you petition can happen when you're praying the proper way, when you're praying in the spirit. And John goes into other things in his little epistle as well. We won't get into those. Do you understand the value of that? Do you understand what Jude is setting his audience up for? When he says we're to pray in the spirit, I want to take you to Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 6, most of you know this by heart, but 
Paul talks about, you know, we're to, we're to um, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. We're to put on all his armor so that we can deal with the deception of the devil. You're supposed to suit up. Get your helmet of salvation on. Get the shield of faith. Put the belt of truth on. The breastplate of righteousness. Shod your feet with the gospel of peace. And grab the sword of the spirit. You're going to war. The very next thing Paul says is this. Look at this. Praying always. Always. And pray without ceasing. With all prayer and supplication, what? In the spirit. Or to pray in the spirit. Now think about this statement again. Jude, or Jude, Paul, he's conveying to the Ephesians and everyone else that would receive the gospel, obviously this letter has went around the globe. It would be for everybody. This is all inclusive. This is what you need to be doing as warriors going to war. It's incumbent upon every one of you. Get on your knees and pray in the spirit. And again, I challenge you as you think about your prayer life, how much are you praying the will of God? How much are you saying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? As I've said before, most of us don't want to pray that prayer. We want to pray our will. That is not praying in the spirit. You want to know why you pray without power? You have no faith and you're not praying in the spirit. And that's a reality. And I think of John 4.24, where Yeshua, he says, and God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in Now, are we talking about, whoa, wait a second. We're only talking about, okay, now we're talking about tongues. So those who worship him must now worship him in tongues and then in truth. This context of spirit, it's much broader. It includes the gift. Of course, it includes the gift of tongues. If somebody is praying with the true gift of tongues, it's not them. The spirit of God is speaking. Hallelujah. Amen? But this is just much broader of what Jude's conveying. Yeshua, I want to show you what it looks like to pray in the Spirit. Yeshua's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he is facing an experience right now that we can hardly describe. And this is what we read. He went a little further, a little farther, and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. <laughs> Considering what he was faith with, Yeshua is praying in the spirit. He's praying the will of the father, knowing the agony and the suffering that he is about to experience. And he still prays in the spirit. That's the ultimate example. That's. What Jude is conveying. He's conveying when we pray in the spirit, this is, this is what it needs to be. Now, continuing on, he says this, keep yourselves in the love of God. How do you do that? How do you do that? You know, I think of these things. First, he tells us, hey, you're to build up on your most holy faith. You're to pray in the spirit. And now you're to keep yourselves in the love of God. What does that look like Practically. Well, Dan actually covered it in the opening prayer. Check this out. John 15, 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Do you want his love? 
If you want his love, you got to go get his commandments. You need to keep his commandments. That's how we keep ourselves in the love of God. That's how we abide in the love of God. And what we're being told today is, no, it's, that's the exact opposite. Actually, if you subject yourself to his commandments, if you subject yourself to his Torah, his law, you don't love him at all. You're rejecting him. You're rejecting the grace. It's absolutely demonic. Does it not blow anyone's mind that Satan is so successful at destroying the truth by pretending to defend it? That's insane. Think about it. John 14, 15, Yeshua says, if you love me, keep my commandments. When's the last time you heard obedience to the law of God being an act of love? Being an act of love. Obedience is love. It's the proof of your love. This is the proof of your love. Deuteronomy 30, verse 10, we're going to go to the Torah and see the heart of the Lord. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God, oh, to keep his commandments, and this is something we've covered in this series, the voice of God is equated to his commandments. It's his word. It should be. I mean, this, this is not complicated, right? But that is his voice that he speaks. He's looking for us to listen to his word, which are his commandments. Then it goes on and says, and his statutes, which are written in the dictates according to your own heart. It's not what it says. <laughs> which are written in the book of the Torah. We have that today. And the church is throwing it out. We have this. And if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul. Do you understand what it means to turn to the Lord your God with all your heart? Not 80%, not 99%. With 100% of your heart, it means you come back here and you hear him. You abide in his commandments, those things. You let the word speak to you. You let you tear, tear you up and tear you down so that the Lord can build you up strong as you listen to his counsel and his truth and his wisdom and his understanding. You will be a new creation in Messiah Yeshua. You don't get to conceptually follow Yeshua. Conceptual believers go nowhere. Believers who actually believe in him, they move. They move with diligence. They add to their faith. Right? They pray in the spirit and they keep themselves in the love of God. You know, I, I look at this, and, I, and of course we think of Yeshua's teachings. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, this says, turn to the Lord your God with all your heart. To do that, you must treasure Yeshua. You must treasure him. He must be your ultimate desire. And the problem that Jude is dealing with, with all these imposters, these dreamers, these mockers, and their scoffers, you know what they've done? They've turned away from God. They've given their heart to someone else. They've given it to the world. And as we drop down to verse 17, we read this. But if your heart turns away, that you do not hear, that you do not hear. In other words, his word, his commandments, his Torah, you're stopping up your ears. In Proverbs 28, for anyone who turns his ear away from hearing the Torah, his prayer is an abomination. Why? Because you become an adulteress. You've told the Lord, I don't love you. 
I'll come to you in prayer. I'll praise your name. I'll go to church. I'll sing all the songs. I'll look the part. But I'm not going to do certain things, and I'm not going to give up certain things in the world. That's just too far. You cannot come into the faith of Yeshua unless you are fully committed and totally radically sold out. Period. There's no in-between here. There is no such thing as, as being lukewarm. And the context, you're in or you're out. Lukewarm is going to send you to hell. He goes on in verse 18, he says this, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. Now hold on. If we stop listening to the voice of the Lord, we stop keeping his commandments, he says, you shall surely perish. That sounds vaguely familiar. I've heard that somewhere before. Oh yeah, in the Garden of Eden, where the Lord warned Adam and Eve, if you do not keep my commandments, if you eat of this tree, you shall surely die. The same message that the Lord preached to Adam and Eve is the exact same message that was preached to Israel in the wilderness, and it is the exact same message that Yeshua preached in his ministry and the apostles took out into the world. Exact same message. It's unreal. Nothing's changed. Oh, that's because God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Torah is his character. It's his love language. Is whether you want to speak that love language or not is going to really affect your relationship with him. There's a passage I alluded to last week, but I wanted to get it up on the screen this week. Do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey? Do you understand? Who are you serving? Are you serving yourself? Well, ultimately, you'd be serving the devil. Or are you serving God? Whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. Now, what is sin? Whoever commits sin commits lawlessness. 1 John 3, 4. So read this. So lawlessness, walking away from the law, refusing to hear from it, is leading to death. You are walking in death by rejecting God's holy word, by his commandments. That somehow today is being exalted when you have certain Christians and certain Christian pastors telling their congregants, run for your life, unhitched from the Old Testament. Get rid of the word. That is from the pit of hell. I kid you not. 1 John 5, 3, he says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Isn't that interesting? I mean, obviously playing off of what Yeshua says in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. This is what love is. I want to take you to Philippians 2, and I'm going to give you, again, the ultimate example. And I want to show you how far, how radical we need to be in our pursuit of the Lord. In Philippians 2.8, we read this. And being found in appearance of a man, Yeshua humbled himself and what? Became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now you think about that. Now we know Yeshua assimilated into his own creation, Hebrews chapter 2, right? He became like one of us. And we know from the writer of Hebrews that he was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And his obedience to truth in the flesh, we have God in the flesh, his obedience to the truth took him to his death. This is where you need to be. You need to look at the obedience that Yeshua showed as he put on a garment of flesh and experienced 
all of the temptations and the trials and everything that you have, and more, obviously, with his crucifixion. But this is the mindset that you need to put on. This is the mindset the apostles put on. They would be faithful unto death. We read this in Revelation 2, something I've been quoting quite a bit lately. Do not fear, this is Yeshua speaking, do not fear any of those things which you're about to suffer. And I'm just going to tell you right now, this is a word for today. This is prophecy. There are things coming. There is going to be persecution. There is going to be suffering. So listen to these words. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison or even camps that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. What does it mean to be faithful? To be faithful unto death. You know what it means? The biblical definition, structure of the faith, that you call on the name of Yeshua, you put your trust in him, and you keep the commandments of God. It's the structure of the faith. This is what it means. And so I will not renounce the name of Yeshua. As we've seen, people were put uh, to the test, even in the second and third century where they were to renounce the name of Yeshua and they were to break the commandments of God. They were to compromise those commandments. And that could range everything from, you know, bowing down to not being able to hear to the simple principles of the word. We cannot compromise all the way to death. You've got to get your heart right here. You know what you need to do? You need to get in love with the Lord. You need to get in love. You need that first love to burn for what, because of what's coming. So this is what it means, as Jude tells us, keep yourselves in the love of God. And now he goes on to say this, looking for the mercy of our Lord Messiah Yeshua until eternal life. Do you see what he just did? You're looking at the structure of the faith. Okay, so, so when Revelation 12, 17 says the dragon is enraged with the woman, goes to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Messiah Yeshua. All things established on the testimony too. Jude just drops that testimony right here. Because what does he say? Keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep the commandments. And who are we looking for? Yeshua. Who's our faith and trust in? Yeshua. That's our testimony. And, and I love what David says in, in Psalm 27. Oh, I would have lost heart unless I had believed I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, the goodness of Yeshua. I would have lost heart. And so this is, I mean, you want to talk about, I, I, I am stunned. I, I, I'll admit, I am stunned at how prophetic and how applicable, how relevant the book of Jude is for us today. It's unreal. That's how you know it's an anointed book. has the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Now he moves on to verse 22. We read this. And on some have compassion, making a distinction. Where this is shifting gears here. He just got done telling us all the things that we need to do. But now he's shifting gears and telling us how to react to certain others. There's going to be two groups here. This is the first group he brings to the table. And he calls, you know, here, and some have compassion. Now, I've highlighted this making a distinction because it really should be translated the following way. Who are doubting? 
And that's why most of the other Bible translations, they, they have this. But in other words, what Jude is telling you, and this goes back to last week, how I said we would be talking about it this week, is loving kindness, brotherly kindness. Jude is saying, show some kindness, show some love to those who are struggling in the faith. Now, why would they be struggling in the faith? Well, just read the book of Jude, first and foremost. Because you have imposters. They've crept into the church. And you know, like Hymenaeus and Philetus, who went out and told people lies. Well, the resurrection's already passed. And then it says that they overthrew the faith of some. They were messing with the church. And when you have people in like that, it affects people. Words do matter. Words do affect. They do impact. And in this case of what he's dealing with, we're dealing with We're dealing with these false prophets, these false teachers that are rocking the world of the church. And Judah's saying, run to their rescue, strengthen them, hold them up, encourage them. That's what he's conveying here. But then we get to the second group, and this is much more intense. In verse 23, we read this, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. In other words, (laughs) Notice the distinction. And notice Jude coming out this strong with strong language like this. He's saying, make a distinction between these groups. Look at the difference. This group of people, they're in hell. They are on the path to hell. They are deceived. They are delusional. They're caught up in sin. They're embracing lawlessness. They're not bearing the fruit of the spirit of God. These people are truly in trouble. You know, today, you don't, people don't want to hear any sort of rebuke whatsoever. In fact, you know, I, I won't get into the details, but someone had posted on, on their blog and it got sent to me about, uh, there was this particular pastor uh, I think he was a pastor, at least one of the, one of the congregants within the church, uh, who was living a same-sex lifestyle as a Christian. And someone came in, and, and it was done well. And they said, hey, brother, you know, basically coming in, you know what, you want to turn from this, because there's a great deception involved here, and the Bible really comes against this. And you, you want to you check out some of these passages, blah, blah, blah. Just came in like a champion, and the response was, not to judge me. Don't come and judge me. You don't know my status or my spiritual state with the Lord. Only the Lord knows that. You know, and then the whole judge not lest you be judged comes to the table where Yeshua talks about that. Please read the rest of Matthew 7 where you say, no, you get spiritual, you get your own house in order, and then you'll be able to go to your brother and help him. See, but nobody wants to hear it. And so the the reason I'm taking a little bit of time right here on this, look at what he says. He's telling you, pull these people out of the fire. You can't do that without confrontation. You cannot do this without bringing the truth. Now, is that going to be easy? That is not going to be easy. It's never easy to be able to do this. I mean, there's times, and I've already admitted this, you know, there's been times in my life I've failed when I should have excelled and I should have succeeded in, in, in years past. Certain situations coming up that if I were given the opportunity, yes, I would do it differently. 
you know? I mean, what is being described right here is life and death. Paul says this, and this will put it into context. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Why is Paul going out with the gospel and telling him hell is coming? Because he actually believes it. He believes hell is coming. The judgment is tangible to Paul, and that has pushed him, hurled him into the world to spread the gospel. That has hurled him back into the churches to correct them. I mean, read his epistles. He does a lot of correcting. He's bringing the hammer. Whether we're talking about the Galatians, whether we're talking about the Corinthians, etc. He brings it. Why? Because he truly believes the judgment is coming. And I got to thinking about this. When we drag our feet and we are not going to our brothers who are going to hell and we know they're going to hell. We know the word. We know what they're doing that it's totally contrary to word. When it says, you know, drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. I'm sorry. We got to have a discussion. You have to have a discussion. The only way you're going to do this, we actually believe it's coming. So I wonder in dragging the feet, Could it be due to the fact you really don't believe it? The judgment isn't tangible to you. You don't see that person being thrown into hell, eternally separated from God. I mean, this is scary stuff. I'm going to take you to Paul's letter, second letter to Timothy. Because if we're going to talk about pulling people out of the fire, man, there's a course of action we need to follow. There are certain attributes that we need to possess. We're not qualified to do this. In 2 Timothy 2.24, we read this. And the servant of the Lord must not quarrel. First thing to recognize, do you ever meet those people that all they want to do is debate? They're argumentative for the sake of being argumentative? You know, as as a young teen, I got to admit, if my parents set up, I'm going down. I'm going to explain why down is the better choice. You know, you have that teenage rebellion type of stuff. But let's be honest, these people drive us nuts inside. These are people you don't want to be around. These are people that don't edify the church. They destroy the church. You will never pull somebody truly out of the fire in the spirit, in the spirit of God, by having that pompous type of attitude, that type of arrogance. You will ruin the chance for them to come around. And I cannot tell you how many times stories have come back to me of, I didn't even want to come into Torah because this is my experience. And I can tell you there are people walking away from the Torah right now because that is their experience. There's like, this can't be of God. There's no love. It's, it's just diabolical. But Paul says this, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient. I look at everything that is mentioned there, three things, and every one of those things our Lord possesses more than all. These are all characteristics of Yeshua. He is always gentle. He's so loving. He's so patient. Look at your own life. You should be dead. He should have snuffed you out long ago. Should have snuffed me out long ago. So I know the Lord's patient. My own life bears witness of that. And able to teach. In other words, if you can't properly navigate the word with the right heart. No, you're not the right person 
to go on this rescue mission as a first responder to save somebody's life. You're not equipped. Any more than, you know, if, if somebody wanted to call for an ambulance out to a, a horrible accident, I'm not the guy. I'm not equipped to do that. And then he continues in verse 25, he says this, in humility, another attribute of Yeshua, humility, correcting those who are in opposition. Opposition to what? The truth. They're in opposition to the truth. Paul is recognizing this. And therefore he goes, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. What is the goal? This is the goal, is to come to repentance so that we know the truth. And in John chapter 8, oh, it's the truth sets us free. Isn't that amazing how Paul lays this out so systematically? That's the whole goal. Get them to repentance. And you you look at the promises of the Lord in Jeremiah 3, right? Jeremiah 3, oh, return. The call of the Lord is return you backsliding children. I will heal your backslidings. It doesn't say, I might, I might think about it. It says, I will. I mean, that kind of goes back to what it says early on in Exodus for the seven I wills of all deliverance. It's amazing. He says, I will heal your backslidings. Those sins you've committed or you failed him, those things you're ashamed of, that you bear shame, Yeshua will take those. And, as, and you think about that as we're coming up on Yom Kippur. This is all about the glory of Yeshua and him redeeming us. And literally our sins, though they were scarlet, there's going to be as white as snow. It's a beautiful mentality. And this is really the heart of God. This is what he's after. He wants people to come back to him. Verse 4, or 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says this, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. I mean, again, Paul's theology is really consistent. And this lines up with what we covered last week. That's his desires that we can be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. To come to the knowledge of the truth, you have to bring it. And the devil has set it up so that people are no longer bringing the truth to them. They're putting their arm around them. They're betraying them with a kiss and saying, you don't need to change. It's okay. God loves you as you are. Where is the truth? Where is God's version? Where is his words? Where's his input? Does anybody care anymore? Moving on, 2 Timothy, we're in verse 25 here. We're going to move to verse 26. And that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. What? Having been taken captive by him to do his will. Let that sink in for a second. This is what's so scary about all of this as I, as I look at this. There are people out there, they believe, they go to church, they raise their hands, they sing the right songs. But at the end of the day, they're not serving the Lord. At the end of the day, they're not walking with him. At the end of the day, they have literally given their heart to Hasatan. They've given their heart to the devil. And it, it, what's so amazing to me is just replaying what happened in the garden. Somehow, the devil convinced Eve to trust him more than trusting God. Somehow, the devil convinced Eve to listen to his words more than the words of God. 
Now think about that, because this is replaying over and over. This is happening right now. It's unbelievable. And the, you know, the devil, can, he convinced her that he would offer her something more than God had offered her. God had prohibited the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He prohibited, but the devil offered it to her. Oh, that's which, which is prohibited. No, I'll give to you. Just go do it. And of course, rip out all the fear. You'll surely not die. It'll be fine. And you'll gain on top of it. This is just, it's getting insane. And going back to Matthew 15, 8, we read, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. You, you got to go back to the Torah. See, all of this works together. He's dealing with the heart, and we know if your heart is not right, you are not listening to God. You're not listening to his voice. You're not keeping his commandments. You're not doing those things that you're supposed to be doing. Their heart is not far from you. And, and, and look at this. I mean, we're dealing with believers here. They're drawing near to him. They're paying him homage. I want to take you to Ezekiel in chapter 3, and this is where the challenge really comes in. Ezekiel 3, verse 17. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, hear a word from my mouth, and what? Give them warning for me. Interesting, where does the warning come from? Does it come from Ezekiel? It comes from the word. The word of the Lord is what gives the warning. Now all you need to do is go read Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And then you drop down a few verses, and it says, by them, your servant is warned. In other words, this is a pretty important book. It's the warning. And like I said, you're not equipped to handle the deception that the evil one is going to throw at you. But God is. And when you go to his word and you absorb his word, this is the truth. Then you'll be able to see the lie, even though it sounds so believable, even though it sounds so right. Moving on to the next verse, verse 18. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die. Again, sound familiar? This is what is said in the Garden of Eden. You're going to die. And you give him no warning nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life. What happens here? That same wicked man shall die in his iniquity. Again, one of the scariest passages in scripture. Isn't it interesting to me that Jude has managed to go grab pretty much all of the scariest scriptures in the Bible and bring them to the surface? I mean, really, we just keep looking at these things. And the reason this is so scary to me is this. God is flat out saying in this passage, he says it elsewhere as well. If you do not go on the mission, if you're called to go speak that warning and his word to the people, and you do not go on the mission, understand something. That person is going to hell. Now, in our minds, we want to think, no, that's, you know, God will take care of it. If he'll send somebody else, I ain't got to worry about it. According to this passage, that person is going to die in their sin. They're going to go to hell because you did not step up. Because you do not what you do what you were called to do. So this is not just scary one way. This is scary two ways. This is scary incumbent upon us, this, this issue that falls, the responsibility that is falling on us. 
And it really scares me that when someone doesn't follow what the Lord says and doesn't go on the mission and doesn't speak the word of truth when it needs to be spoken, that person's a goner. But again, if you don't believe that, you'll pat yourself on the back, you move on, and you'll keep it out out of sight, out of mind. But understand this, it will come back because we read this, his blood I will require at your hand. It will circle back. You did not build the kingdom of God. You actually destroyed it. I think about that, and that weighs heavy on me. And people wonder why, you know, they... <laughs> I've had so many people come up, man, you, you're, you're kind of radical. You kind of speak boldly. There's no option. There's not for me, no other option. What am I going to do? I have to speak the word of the Lord. I have to speak the truth. It's all I have to offer you. And, and, and those who actually stand on truth, yeah, they're radical. They sound crazy at times. I get that. Especially for my wife. Verse 19. Yet, if you warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity. Oh, but you delivered your soul. So if you, if you wanted to try to play with the sense of his blood is on your hands as though, well, you know, I don't really know what that means, but it's not death. It's not me being judged. This is scary because now we're talking about the Lord comes out and says, well, just in case you were trying to play with that. No, I'm talking about delivering your own soul. There's going to be a lot of repenting today. If you think about all those opportunities that you missed, where you knew the Spirit of God was calling you to speak up and to speak in someone's life, and you were scared, and you didn't want the confrontation. God have mercy. Verse 20. Again, when a righteous man turns from the righteousness and commits iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Hold on a second. Here we go again. Scary, scariest verse in the Bible. One of the scariest verses. We're talking about the church. We're talking about believers who are saved. They're walking with the Lord. We're dealing with the righteous man. Men of the likes of what you would talk about, like Noah, described as a righteous man. But this righteous man came derailed. He came off the tracks. The Lord laid, he tested him. And what the Lord is telling you is when that righteous man derails, he stops listening to the Lord. He does not keep himself in the love of God. He does not know. He's no longer adding to his faith. He's going to die. And the enemy today is going to tell you, no, you're not. You will surely not die. It's okay to let your hair down a little bit. It's okay to do a little bit of this because everyone's doing it. It's almost like, I mean, it it baffles me. It's like the word of God doesn't matter. Nobody cares what what the Lord has to say. Well, why is this person going to die? There's more here. Because you did not give him warning. So we're talking about in the church. We're talking about warning those in the church that have derailed. And when we don't give him warning, he shall die in his sin. And his righteousness, which he has done, shall not be remembered. But his blood I will require at your hand. You ever wonder why I come so hard, down hard on all these things that I'm seeing in the church? Don't wonder. This stuff needs to come out. And when I'm given every opportunity to discuss these things, now if some of you remember when I 
This was several years ago when I did the debate uh, with Jeff. You know, afterward, I, <laughs> I, I was being called the Antichrist. It was, not, it was not a message that was received well. I, don't, I wouldn't take that back for the world. I spoke the word of God and let God deal with it. I, I did my part in that. So, verse 21. Nevertheless, if you warn the righteous man that the righteous should not sin. So now you're going to the rescue of these men. And he does not sin. He shall surely live because he took warning. Also, you have delivered your soul. Ultimate victory. This is the ultimate plan of Yeshua. This is the plan of God. It's that you listen to him, you go on the mission, you show gentility and patience and love, you move in the spirit, you bring the truth, the person hears you and repents and comes back into the kingdom of God. That is beautiful. There's poetry that describes this in Proverbs that I have to share, and I thought about this, so I put it up here. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. Like an earring of gold in an ornament of fine gold is what? A wise rebuker to an obedient ear. Not a foolish rebuker. Not a puffed up and arrogant rebuker with a big plank in his eye. A wise rebuker to an obedient ear. It's like apples of gold in setting of silver. In other words, what we just read in Ezekiel at the end there That's the beauty of God. People are getting saved. People are being redeemed. James says this in 519, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, again, we're dealing within the church. These people have derailed. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will do what? He will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Do you want to be a part of that? Absolutely. I want to share a passage with you from the Talmud that speaks to all of this. And it just, again, more poetically puts this into context of the gravity of what we're dealing with. In Sanhedrin 4.5, we read the following. Man was first created a single individual to teach the lesson that whoever destroys one life Scripture ascribes to him as though he had destroyed a whole world. Now you think about that. You destroy, and what does Yeshua say? Yeshua kind of in, in, in a different way describes that if you make one of these little ones stumble, it'd be better if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. Strong language. Strong language here of putting it into context. That you make one person stumble, you destroy one life. You're destroying the entire world. I, mean, I, just, I just, and the way the way they get this, I won't get into it, but they get this out of the interaction between Cain and Abel, and the fact that when you read the Hebrew, the the, the term blood that that is used there, and you shed the blood of Abel, the term there is in the plural, and so the way the the rabbis look at that is it's all the descendants that were to come from Abel. Cain killed them, took them out. Think about that. But then it says this, and whoever saves one life, one person in our, in, in our context for, for Yeshua, scripture ascribes to him as though he had saved the whole world. See, that's the kind of, gra- that's the kind of weight that we need to feel in regard to pulling these people out of hell. 
getting them out of the fire. I want that conviction. I want that urgency. I want that weight. Luke 15, verse 17, Yeshua says, I say to you that likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who needs no repentance. I want to bring joy to heaven. I want to be that guy. I mean, you have to decide whether that's what you want to do, where you can actually have an impact on heaven itself. And how it rejoices when we pull these people out of the fire. Jude says, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. And then he goes on, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. And that statement really kind of goes back to Zechariah 3, where Yehoshua, the son of Jehozadak, he's in nasty, filthy garments. And those garments are equated because of his iniquity. But when God comes in and he forgives his iniquity, he's given new garments. It's the redemption of God. And so this is, this is just a powerful lesson that Jude, at the, right at the end, that he lays out on us. And now we're going to get to the closing. And this closing is really pure. I mean, it's, 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 pure, it's a doxology. In other words, this is not something that needs commentary. And so what I'm going to do, I'm just going to respect this, and we're just going to read this. And this is what he says as he closes out his epistle. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen.